Hello and welcome to Dungeons and Drama Nerds. I'm Nick, here with our ensemble member, Leo Mock. Hi. And this week we're going to be discussing that ineffable sensation the Danish call hygge, or coziness, both in theater and tabletop role-playing games. Wow, multilingual. <laughs> I like I love Hugo because a I I know some Danish folks and I love Hugo was a thing like four years ago I feel like everything was Hugo yeah and as far as I can tell it just means cozy but European so fancier yeah hey get out get at us in the comments Danish people <laughs> let us know what Hugo is alienating our massive Danish listening audience. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, should we start by kind of talking about for us what those things mean? Yeah. Yeah, let's start with that. So what is coziness? So coziness to me feels like it's uh, the idea of being like safe and secure. Mm -hmm. Um particularly like like there's an idea of kind of enclosure with it i feel like when i was googling hygge earlier so i could make jokes about it there was a phrase <laughs> like comfortable conviviality to it Ooh. which i really like there's also though i i think the um this is very silly but if you know the the like sleepy time bear mm. from sleepy mm -hmm. time tea i'm like yes that is the epitome of cozy to me. <laughs> when I was a kid and I saw Men in Black, do you remember like the egg chair? Oh yeah, vaguely. That always seemed so cozy to me. And it came up when you said enclosure, because mm. it was just something that you could kind of like tuck yourself into and, and exist within the egg. <laughs> that was like one of my earliest ideas of what cozy looked like in media. Um, and I think for me, another part of coziness is kind of like a protection from the unknown or mm. um, as few surprises as possible. I think of cozy as like, I have an extended space or period of time where I know what's going to happen. I know what the plan is. Nothing's gonna jump out at me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, yeah, that feeling of security, which I I think is I think is interesting and challenging when you uh, said you wanted to take on this idea of cozy theater and cozy tabletop role playing games. I was excited by it because I was like, I actually have a hard time in some ways immediately connecting like theater to coziness because i feel like in western drama so much of what we prioritize often or what has been like historically prioritized is like not knowing and like conflict and you know tension and violence twists. yeah and twists yeah. and all all of these things that feel very uncozy to me of like shock and surprise <laughs> and like like not yeah. being destabilized um yeah. Does that does that make sense that like disconnect? <laughs> Absolutely. And as someone who like has been in a, a number of theaters and has felt very uncozy, yeah, it's felt <laughs> <laughs> it it also I think one of the reasons I wanted to tackle this question was because I felt so like, wait, what is this? Yeah. Um 
So like any good academic, I started by posting a question on my Instagram stories. <laughs> <laughs> because that's the way I, I survey my peers these days. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I promise it's very sound as a device. Um, and I just asked like the question, what does cozy theater mean to you? Because uh, I have a, a bunch of friends who also make theater. And the answers I got kind of existed within three different broad categories. The first one was the play is cozy in content. So it's a play that you go and you see, and there aren't a lot of surprises. There aren't a lot of big twists or like feelings of discomfort. It's a little bit um, easier in showing. Uh, does that make sense? Yeah, I'm trying to think of examples of that. The one that I immediately come to, which is part like partly the content itself and partly the social context is like the and I feel like everybody who's in professional theater makes fun of this a little bit, but it's still <laughs> true. The like Christmas Carol or other mm -hmm. holiday show that like lots of regional theaters do every year it doesn't necessarily have to be christmas carol but some places do um oh, what's it called santa land diaries yeah. i think that's the title um some do the it's a wonderful life radio play like there's a lot of kind of christmas slash quote-unquote holiday <laughs> plays <laughs> that theaters will do like every year that feel very cozy both because of what they are but also because of that kind of ritual annual repetition of it of like we go and we know what's going to be because it's going to be the same every year i mean i grew up where i grew up there was a community theater group that did a musical called scrooge every year oh. Um, which was a Christmas carol, but it was like they did it with like literally 120 people from the community. But, you know, that was not only was it the same show every year, it was also like many of the same people. You know, mm. Richard Enders played Scrooge <laughs> for like 20 years. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So, I don't know. That sense of like, yes, I know what this is going to be. I feel secure um yeah does that make sense absolutely i love you bringing up the ritual aspect of it because something i thought of while you were talking is that it doesn't have to be like an objectively cozy show it can be super mm. subjective if i know that like <laughs> so my birthday is on bastille day and so every Ooh. year on my birthday, I listen to the Le Miserables soundtrack like, <laughs> beginning to end. And it's become a cozy show for me because it's like, a, I know what's going to happen. I know exactly what the next track is. And so even though the content isn't exactly the most cozy, it's a very like cozy experience because it's expected. It's a ritual. Yeah. Which kind of scooches me forward to this next element that people brought up, which was it's cozy in design. Um, you know those movie theaters that are just like big sofa chairs? Yes. <laughs> Bring those. those to theaters. Bring those to live <laughs> theaters. Um, so this can look like um, maybe the tech elements are a little bit softer. Maybe the sounds are gentle. 
maybe there's not going to be any like gunshots or smoke or, you know, other things that are going to be startling or upsetting or make for a, a troubling physical experience in the theater. Um, I thought of like relaxed performances, uh, which mm-hmm. are becoming a, a more common thing in professional and community theaters, uh, which is really exciting for me. Yeah, I feel like relaxed performances, I don't have a ton of firsthand experience with them, but I do think there's something really fruitful there in terms of thinking about what it means to design for 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 coziness, maybe, but <laughs> but also more fundamentally for that idea of safety and security that we were talking about as being part of coziness. And more and more, I'm kind of like, why, why aren't all our performances relaxed? Like, it seems <laughs> very, I don't know. There are, there's a lot of things I'm like, this, this would just be better if nobody was stressing out about, about anything during it. Like if people could get up and leave and come back as they wanted and. Absolutely. And if we are, even if we are designing for something specifically like cognitive equity or like I want to make sure that folks who are like allergic to the fog machine are going to like have deep, deep upset from trying to process these big sensory inputs. Like even if we are designing for specific populations, it's going to feel safer, cozier. It's going to feel like more care for everyone, which I really love. Yeah. And then the final category that people brought up and the one that came up most frequently was um, cozy in your experience as a reader of the play, which felt really interesting to me that this was coming up for plays, which are something, you know, more often than not, most people go and see. I think that fewer people are going to like sit down and read a play than people who might go and watch a play. This might be different. I'm talking about like the average play enjoyer. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) And so there were so many people who came in and were like, yeah, coziness is sitting down with a play that's like the content makes you want to bundle up by a fireplace and like watch a storm outside. So... Um, someone brought up uh, The Thin Place by Lucas Nath. Someone brought up Hookman by Lauren Yee. So very much not cozy in content, but you wanted to be cozy while experiencing it. Yeah, I I thought of, uh, when you described this, Ghosts in the Graveyard by C. Meeks Meeker, the keeper of our mm-hmm. Brindlewood Bay game, um, which is a sort of Scooby-Doo riff, mystery, haunting play but is also very uh like is is also very feels very secure because it's also about family and intergenerational trauma and healing and like yeah it's it's not it it, it is not like uh i'm not trying to downplay it and talk about it like a a safe play or something like that but it does feel very um secure there's in an odd way actually now i'm thinking of some plays that are more literary actually and thinking about plays that are perhaps more for the not more for the page but like you get different things out of them on the page Mm -hmm. than just a manual for like creating a a performance Um, i'm thinking of jose rivera's sonnets for an old century which is sort of a series of lyric monologues written in 2000 the year 2000 but those are very like because they're so deeply poetic and it's just 
sorry, not just monologues, but as the title says, sonnets, you know, they feel very like um, kind of meditations on different aspects of life in the United States from kind of Jose Rivera and his community's perspective in that moment in time. I love that. And I, I really appreciate works that can be experienced through different mediums and have those different mediums or like methods of experience sort of built into them where you can read them, you can listen to them. As someone who grew up with like, every time I got into the car with my mom, there was another murder mystery audiobook on, and it was always an audiobook. Um, similarly, growing up with like spooky radio shows was a big one for me. I remember yeah. I got a box set of mystery radio shows for Christmas one year and I was obsessed and there are some that still terrify me to this day. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was very much an element of like, you can read it, you can listen to it, you can experience it in all these different ways. So I think this is sort of scooching us into talking about the spookier elements and how they might contribute to or complement cozy elements. Yeah, which is really the territory of Brindlewood Bay, right? But not just Brindlewood Bay, because I know lots of people find like, you know, like to kind of cozy up with like a horror movie or a murder mystery movie or something like that. So what's what is that link? What's the link between murder mysteries and coziness for you, Leo? Such a good question. I feel like I have this question for all my friends who like listen to true crime while they fold their laundry. <laughs> like, <laughs> how can you do this? <laughs> right. Okay. So I did a little bit of research. It turns out a lot of people get a really satisfying experience from this concept called scary play. <laughs> which I just love as a I phrase do love so that much. Name. <laughs> <laughs> so scary play is engaging with scary or frightening or otherwise unsettling material for enjoyment as a learning and coping strategy. And it doesn't necessarily have to be consciously as a learning and coping strategy. It's something that can just sort of come about through this experience. So part of that might be what some studies show is this connection between um, like thriller and horror media assisting and regulating our nervous systems. So uh, people like me who are always walking around with a slightly raised cortisol level, like maybe living with chronic anxiety or living with other regular stresses, it gets kind of hard to tip that um, those hormone levels over to the point that they're going to refresh and recycle. But if you sit down and you watch a really scary movie or you read a really scary book and you sort of convince your body that there is something to fear without actually having to engage with the danger, you can sort of trick your brain into being like, oh, I've reached the peak fear and now I can begin like catharsis mode. Uh -huh. um, so engaging with this material can help us complete that stress cycle, simulate that fight, flight, freeze, etc. And then give us that catharsis, whether that's unmasking the monster or solving the mystery or defeating the cosmic horror. Yeah, absolutely. I'm thinking of mysteries particularly now at like my brain is just sort of zeroing in on that and I'm like, oh yeah, and there's something to the the satisfaction of a really good mystery, I feel like is always the sense of order that it brings. It's like, you know, a lot of chaotic 
perhaps frightening uh, elements that then get resolved into a like clean. Ah, yes, everything actually fits together and makes sense, and like brings us back to that feeling of of security again, of the world kind of having an order to it that we exist within. And it's so satisfying because life doesn't work like that. So often, like, we want to find the one unifying thing that is the cause of all our problems or, like, you know, and yeah. it's probably capitalism. But, <laughs> one <laughs> like, in doubt. <laughs> oh, no, the monster was capitalism. Um, <laughs> but it's so satisfying to be able to say, like, ah, yes, this was the big bad. Um, and then to be able to sort of move forward either with peace or onto the next mystery or whatever it is. So on that note of engaging with like mysteries and solutions, one study on scary play said, quote, horror offers individuals a way to play with fear by providing opportunities to engage with moderately frightening experiences in a safe context. And in a meta sense, this is also like sitting and reading your book by the fireplace while there's a big storm going on outside. Uh-huh. It's an opportunity to like put puzzle pieces together, to stretch your brain a little bit, get that mental exercise and engage with fear to help you learn and grow. Yeah, well, and and to give give yourself uh the tools to like handle that fear you you you've you've got a quote from i may be mispronouncing the name but i think it's margie Kerr here i think it's margie kerr so margie kerr thank you uh who wrote in scream chilling adventures in the science of fear quote making fear safe allows you to develop a healthier relationship with it and use it for what you need And I think that's, yeah, that's one of the great things about scaring yourself within that safe context is like, yes, we we do need fear. Actually, fear is a very healthy thing. Fear tells us when something is is wrong or uh, when something feels unsafe. And that's very useful. This kind of cozy but scary play allows us to engage with our fear in a way that is healthy and like lets us flex that muscle while not actually having to like put ourselves at risk to do that yeah and the question that it brings to mind for me is linking it back to theater how can we bring a little bit of fear into theater in a cozy way um, I hear <laughs> I hear some people say the whole like theater is not a place to be safe <laughs> and to me, it's like, okay, I think we can be safe in the theater. We can get uncomfortable. I think it's totally fair to ask audience members to interface with material that feels uncomfortable for them. And if that brings about any real fears of like, oh no, I think this play is talking about me. <laughs> like, are there ways that we can work in cozy elements that help audiences remain more open to that? And maybe remain more open to this kind of scary play that is interfacing with a fear they may have in a way that feels um, sustainable and ultimately safe. I, I think about our obsession in like Western theater and Western kind of narrative art more generally with plot and like the twist. And it feels really 
misplaced in a lot of ways, but I think a lot of that question of security and so on in some ways goes back to um, the, the, the idea of knowing what's going to happen, which we're so reluctant to allow audiences to, to know. And I just, I don't know, increasingly I wonder if that is useful because there's something certainly there are times when it's like yes it this message has its greatest emotional impact uh if you don't know how exactly everything is going to play out but that can also be you can risk harming people sometimes uh in that and i think about you know i I think all of our plot obsession kind of goes back to aristotle and (laughs) it all goes back to aristotle it all goes back to aristotle (laughs) that fucker (laughs) but but he was writing in a context where you know everybody did know the plots like basically in basic outline um you know everybody knew because they because they were popular stories so nobody in a like athenian audience was under any illusion that like jason and medea were going to get back together (laughs) uh you know, at the end of that play. And so there's something to be said for the act of being together and speaking words into a space. You know, even when you know what the like events of the story are going to be. And yeah, I mean, I feel like that infects our whole relationship with content warnings, which are now sort of established practice, but were so contentious when they were first introduced and it's like just let people know what's going on if they want to know because then they then they can engage with it safely (laughs) right and ultimately it is about that choice right just making the choice available if you want to interact with this safety tool or not um something that happened recently is in uh an actual play show that i watch uh published some content notes that were kind of spoilery And they included the note that these content notes could contain spoilers because they can. And people had really mixed feelings because some people were really grateful to know about the content that was going to come up. And some people were like, hey, I didn't need that content note. And now this is spoiled for me. And I, I, my hot take is like, let's be spoiler neutral (laughs) in some ways. Um... It's, it's always been a, a thing for me of like, oh, why is it so important? On the flip side of what we're talking about, about like, yeah, let's be surprised. On the flip side, why is it so important to feel surprised? And why does everything have to be a surprise? Anyway, yeah. I can ramble on about content notes for a very long time. <laughs> Let me reel myself back in. <laughs> and I'm so grateful that it's um, Meek's working on this game after getting to work together for um, Bluebeard and like talking about safety tools way back then. Like I, I just I believe that as far as safe, um, scary play can go, I think it's in the best hands uh, with the Meeks as keeper. Yeah, Meeks is very dedicated to that, which is wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So getting back into Brindlewood Bay, we know what makes it scary. We know what makes it spooky. Do you want to lay out some of those elements for our dear listeners? Oh, the scary spooky elements specifically? Yeah, sure. Maybe just a couple. What makes it spooky? I mean, I think so. So Brindlewood Bay is basically a mashup of uh, the murder mystery genre and particularly the 
amateur detective, elderly woman, basically murder she wrote, pretty explicitly mm-hmm. murder she wrote, uh, <laughs> with a kind of H.P. Lovecraftian uh, small town New England cosmic horror. And that that is where the kind of spooky, scary elements come in is both the ordinary, the sort of standard murder mystery creepiness of like, oh, somebody has you know, been killed in this small town, plus the ongoing sense that I think Meeks has done a really good job crafting that there is something bigger going on in this town behind the scenes. And that's what uh, Jason Cordova calls the void mystery, uh, which is the, you know, occult conspiracy in Brindlewood Bay. And that is sort of slowly revealed over the course of play, which I'm very excited uh, about at the point where we're recording the void mystery uh has started to really come to the fore in the games that the group is playing so i'm excited to see it fully culminate <laughs> i love that so it sounds like our spooky elements are both <laughs> i was gonna use the word acute and chronic synonyms so our spooky elements are both these sort of day-to-day interactions, these um, minor mysteries, if you will, mm-hmm. and this overarching thing of something bigger, something badder is going to come for us. And we've got to yeah. be working against that as well. And I would venture to say that the cozy elements might work in similar ways, where there are these sort of everyday tools and tactics and moves and actions and there's this overarching ask for the game to remain cozy uh do you want to talk about some of those elements sure so brindlewood bay describes itself as a cozy murder mystery and there is this explicit focus on coziness uh in a lot of the game uh for example all of the murder mavens who are the the women at the core of the game have what are called cozy little places which are their own usually their homes but some place that is uh you know kind of uniquely theirs where they engage in cozy little activities and have cozy vignettes with one another um one of the keeper principles is to keep the game cozy and there is this real push i think to balance the horror on one hand with the idea that life that there is some like security and joy and comfort in life and that is not in the sort of lovecraftian you know i think would be the lovecraftian way a sort of unremittingly bleak (laughs) uh (laughs) like struggle um that yes that's uh, my sort of brief uh overview but i think there are other ways that the game allows you to kind of maintain that scary play uh that you were talking about before like in the crown moves for example um so for the crown moves just to kind of review are ways that the mavens can alter the effects of a die roll and i think what's important to understand about them and that you'll hear on the on on the actual play is that the bad consequences of the die roll are always narrated first 
So if you roll and you fail the roll, the keeper describes how you, for example, fall to your death, you know, from the high place that you were exploring or something like that. Uh, And then the maven can put on a crown to shift the result so that it is a success instead of a failure. And what this does is, A, it gives the players a lot of control. Um, I, I think I said before on one of the commentary episodes that this is the game that feels to me the most of any game we've played, like it gives the players agency over what happens to their characters, and it encourages you to actually explore those kind of dark uh, narratives and those kind of grim outcomes while giving you the tool to say, okay, that is what we're imagining, but we're actually going to veer away from that because that's not the consequence we actually want to happen. We're going to play with it, but not realize it um and that's very cool i think i love that because the stakes stay high you know it's not like you're losing this consequence it's not like it is a do-over but you still have to fully experience that big bad thing happening before you get to say okay wait let's have a do-over um and i love that because that means creative control for the players and for the keeper I think so Mm. often it becomes a trade-off or people think of it as a trade-off of like, oh, well, if I give my players more creative control than I as the keeper or the GM or the DM or anything else, no longer have that. But I think that Brindlewood Bay does such an excellent job of really sharing that responsibility, both for coziness and for spookiness and sharing that creative control. Um, that came up for me as well in the the theorize actions because I just <laughs> that's one of my favorite moments in the murder mystery genre is when everybody <laughs> in the room has a clue and then suddenly they all get put together and you're having this opportunity not just for creative control for you as a single player but for the whole team to come together and talk about what could happen. Yeah, the collaboration that happens in the theorize move is really, really delightful to listen to. Um, I will say I have I have not played Brindlewood Bay myself, so I haven't experienced it. But I think it's a lovely, yeah, again, a moment of like teamwork and creative authorship that feels very um, cozy and secure. And again, about that, like fitting things into an order because you're actually... Oh, God, I'm forgetting the exact details of the mechanics. But basically, the more clues that you can fit into the narrative you're weaving, the better the role you make will be. So mm-hmm. the so there is a real push from the game narratively to be like, oh, no, you you want to find a way to weave every single one of these clues into a sort of cohesive tapestry explanation of what's happened and like return yourself to that secure uh world even when at the same time this game is proposing that like there's also other like creepy occult stuff going on (laughs) in the background yeah it's there's so much collaboration encouraged and there's so much relationship um building encouraged throughout the game thinking of the um the cozy move and how that can encourage relationship building between characters which I think that there are other games that have similar moves that are about building relationships. I'm thinking of like the day moves from Night Witches, 
Um, there were a few things in Thirsty Sword Lesbians where you could uh, remove other characters' conditions. Um, do you have any thoughts on what makes the cozy moves or cozy activities in Brindlewood Bay unique in terms of how they build relationships? Yeah, I think what's... Um, I'm, not, I'm not familiar with Night Witches, but I can say what I think is uh, lovely about Brindlewood Bay's cozy move is that it centers the relationship between you and another person, because what it says is actually you explicitly have to have an intimate moment with another maven while one of you is engaged in your cozy activity, which could be something like letter writing or flower pressing <laughs> or something like that. Um, and then you get to clear a condition. And if it is your cozy activity that is being engaged in, uh, you can stumble on a clue rele relevant to the active mystery. And I think two things strike me as relatively unique about this. Number one is the fact that it, it, it does foreground the relationship between two player characters really closely. And the other one is that there is no um, there's no failure state. Uh, you know, this is just a kind of secure way to clear a condition, which is one thing the move does, potentially get a clue uh, and build that relationship between uh, two characters in a really kind of lovely on-screen way. Um, yeah, does that answer the question that you're thinking of? It does, and it's making me think of something that um, feels unique to this specific kind of mystery genre, which is that rest is productive. Yes. Right. I feel like in so many scary genres, it's when you're resting that the big bad thing comes to catch you. Um, and I think that this reminds us like, no, you actually need to be at rest for your brain to be at full problem solving ability. It's why you come up with ideas in the shower, <laughs> like because you're at rest. So this is the fun thing that I learned. Um, this is from Devin Price's uh, Laziness Does Not Exist, which is an amazing book. But he talks about how when you are stressed and you're trying to solve a problem, your brain is going to make the fastest A to B solution. It's not going to think about creative solutions. It's not going to think about um, inventing or innovating. It's just going to be like, how do I do this fast? Because I don't have time. When you're at rest, when you spend plenty of time doing restful activities that feel actually restorative, that's when your brain can be like, ooh, now I can actually give some thought about how I want to do this in a, a new or interesting way, which is so often, I think, what these famous mystery solvers, these famous inspectors and everybody else do is they're like, they have a hobby, they have the thing that they do, and when they have those moments at rest, they're like, oh, here's the clever way this all makes sense. I just love this game reinforcing that. Yeah, yeah, no, I hadn't thought about that, but you're so right. Yeah, th this idea that the mystery is going on, but you don't stay, you, you in fact shouldn't stay completely like face first in the mystery, like we have to solve this like right away. No, it's, it's actually better if you, is probably better for you if you take some time away, go, you know, take a shower, do some flower pressing, whatever. Everybody has, <laughs> everybody has those hobbies. You know, I, I, I'm trying to think of 
the examples, but like, you know, in Murder, She Wrote, she runs she runs a little bookstore or something. I don't remember. Sherlock Holmes smokes opium. That's a cozy little <laughs> hobby or something. If you're I, stressed out by a problem, just smoke some opium for a while. I can't remember what it is. He does some very 19th century drug. <laughs> That's his cozy little hobby. <laughs> Anyway, we all need a hobby. Um. <laughs> but yeah, it, it it is um and and something that you that you've written down here, Leo, that I think is so uh, apt that we just haven't touched on quite yet is is you pointed out that it's also community care that is a built in expectation of the game is that you're not only going to take care of yourself, but because you have to do this with other mavens, that you're going to take care of each other, um, and that's really lovely. The grounding in kind of community which is one way that this stands out from the the murder mystery genre right because so often it's about like you have this one genius or this one like incredible mind that maybe has a sidekick or maybe has like a couple of people that they go to for very specific pieces of information or very specific skills but it's usually the single brilliant person and I think that that genius model, I think, like, bites us in the ass so often with how we think of ourselves and our own creative prowess. Yeah. But, like, everything happens in a team, and I love how this game reinforces that. Yeah. Which is also, I think, part of the coziness, is that you're not having to solve it all as an individual. You get to be part of this community. You get to do this thing with your friends. You get to have this lovely scooby-doo moment (laughs) (laughs) of like everybody on the team has their skills and we know we can rely on one another and we know we can be at rest together and not like you know make one another feel bad or feel guilty about taking a break everybody understands like oh yeah we have to take a break in order to solve this mystery (laughs) in some ways i actually i honestly cannot think of a version of this sort of ethos existing in another medium and i i don't think it necessarily has to emerge from games but i think it's striking Mm. that this game and kind of brilliant that this game is taking uh elements from a couple the kind of team aspect of scooby-doo with the coziness aspect of uh, uh of murder she wrote and blending them together into this thing that really only sort of I can only imagine it emerging in the form of a game because it is about teamwork and about taking care of one another. And that's, like you said, not something that we often enough emphasize in sort of narrative media. Um mm. And now I'm just really, I'm like very happy that this exists. And I hope that we can start seeing it uh, more in other uh, forms and uh, and other media. Because, yeah, this kind of community team oriented approach to cozy murder mystery solving is really lovely. And and I'm in general anti-genius. So (laughs) I want to see like the like Vin Diesel movies. I want to see like the John Wick movies 
but as like a cozy team instead of just this one guy has to. <laughs> I think that's the next genre that I want to apply coziness to is the like, <laughs> big energy action flips. Because uh-huh. I, I think those guys need a break. <laughs> right? Yes. Everybody needs everybody needs so much rest in, in Western <laughs> media. Take a nap. It's going to be okay. <laughs> Stop shooting people and, like, just make some tea. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We all just need to make some tea. I think this is great. Cool. I think we've covered yeah. most of uh, what we wanted so to say. Too. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Leo. This has been delightful and uh, really exciting to talk about. And hopefully we see John Wick uh, and company <laughs> shooting guys and having tea soon yeah yeah find a new cozy activity john wick that's what i want for you Dungeons and Drama Nerds is produced by Todd Brian Backus, Percival Hornack, and Nicholas Orvis, and is mixed and edited by Anthony Sertel-Dean. Season 3 features contributions from Christopher Dierksen, Ben Ferber, Corey Flores, Tess Huth, Romana Isabella, Leo Mock, John John Johnson, and Dex Vaughn. If you'd like to help us continue exploring the intersection of theater and tabletop role-playing games, consider leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice or supporting us and getting access to our patron-only bonus content at patreon.com slash dungeonsanddramanerds. You can find our social media and website links, including our cast bios, at the link tree in our show notes. Be sure to tune in next week for another episode of Dungeons and Drama Nerds. Dungeons and Drama Nerds.